Hey, if you have a Bible, though, open it to 2 Timothy, the letter of 2 Timothy, chapter number 4. Uh, tonight, we'll be finishing our time uh, in the letter uh, written to Timothy, um, the, the second letter written to Timothy. Uh, in case you are unaware, or maybe it's your first time or your first time in a long time, uh, we go through a Bible reading plan together, or at least we invite everybody uh, in our context to read Scripture together through our Bible reading plan. This year, we're walking through the New Testament together. It's been a fun process. Matter of fact, been reading through the Gospel of John right right now. I don't know if any of you have loved reading through the Gospel of John as much as me, but a very challenging book, um, very encouraging, and so I've really enjoyed that. But uh, typically, we would take something from our Bible reading plan, and we would study it on Wednesday night during our midweek time together. But because we're going to be walking through the Gospel of John on Sundays, we took a little detour and stayed with the entire letter of 2 Timothy. So tonight, we will end that time. Next week, we will not meet. The week after that, we will pack blessing bags, and then the week after that, we will start Revelation together. And by that, I hope it only lasts like two weeks. I haven't really looked at the Bible reading plan, but maybe I should. Anyway, we'll see how much of that uh, we can we can cover during that time. So a lot will be happening uh, by that point in time, but we will finish up uh, 2 Timothy in chapter number 4. Um, one thing you may or may not know about me, I wear contacts. I don't wear my glasses very often just because glasses kind of annoy me. If you're a glasses person, I understand. Um, I could just never get used to wearing them all the time. They always got in my way. And so since, I don't know, my early years of college probably, I've fought with contacts and have wore them uh, ever since. But I remember my life before I got glasses. As a matter of fact, I was really in college before I broke down and decided Decided that I was going to have to be a glasses type person. I could not make it any longer. I was not able to see the things that I think ordinary, normal people could see. Matter of fact, I spent every year of school that I can remember sitting wherever I wanted to in class because I never had a problem seeing whatever I needed to see, which meant that most of the time I tried to find my way to the back. Now, that didn't always happen because my last name starts with a B, and if you have one of those wonderful teachers that puts you in alphabetical order, that usually puts me toward the front of the class. If I did manage to get to the back of the class, I would also sometimes find my way to the front of the class for various other reasons. I'll let you use your imagination uh, for that. But when it was my choice, I would sit mostly in the back, especially when it came to college. I would find whatever little nook or cranny in the back and hide there and try to be as not noticed as possible. However, uh, a few of my professors in college happened to use a lot of notes. What I was discovering was, as I would sit in the back of the class, I couldn't see anything that my professors were writing. In fact, most of the time, I'd have to sit behind somebody who took good notes just so I wouldn't have to sit in the front of the class. So as they copied their notes, I just copied theirs because I couldn't see what was on the board. But I will never forget the day that I decided to get glasses. And here's what I would say to you. The trees have never looked so green, and the sky had never looked so blue. Now, this may sound a little extreme, but it completely changed the way that I saw the world. Everything was blurry until I got my glasses. Matter of fact, I wanted to give you an example tonight. If I was you sitting out there right now, and I didn't have my contacts in, this is what the title slide would look like for me. I cannot see it. I am 
challenged when it comes to my eyeballs. Everything was blurry until I got my glasses. There were things that I couldn't see when I was driving that now all of a sudden looked beautiful as I was screaming down the highway. If I didn't have my contacts in, this is what it would look like. I wouldn't know what most of your faces are. I would probably be able to guess who you are by other means, but I would not be able to see you very good. Glasses changed the way that I see things. They changed really my perspective on the world around me. Now, you may have no idea what it's like to not be able to see well. Matter of fact, most of you are probably some of those lucky souls who don't have to wear glasses. However, I bet you've had your perspective about something changed before. It was one way, and then something happened, and it made it another way. I tried to think of a few examples of this in my own life, and I came up with a couple of them. How many of you have loved a restaurant for years and years and years, and then you had an experience that changed that perspective forever? That could have been your favorite Chinese restaurant that had a roach in one of your dishes. Um, that could have been your favorite I don't know why I'm putting any particular type of restaurant, Italian, and there was a rat, uh, you know, under a table, whatever the case may be. You know, you had a bad experience, and now your favorite restaurant has instantly become your not-so-favorite restaurant. As a matter of fact, total side note here, the other night I went to a movie all by myself. That's right. I went by myself to watch a movie. And let me tell you something, for those of you who are judging me right now, it was glorious. All right, but... (laughs) I went to the movie by myself, and there was only like four other people in the theater, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the movie, a lady next to me is going crazy. I mean, just screaming and jumping, and I was like, what is going on? And all of a sudden, she said, there was a mouse in my chair. And listen, her husband, another man in the theater, they're like chasing it down with their phones and their flashlight. There it is. Look, there it is. And they're recording it, and I mean, they are going crazy. She said it came out of her bag. I'm wondering if she brought it from her house. How long had that mouse been in her bag? By the way, ladies, you may want to check that tonight before you go to bed. But anyway, when the movie, I, I didn't really, I saw what was happening, but I just kept watching the movie. It was great. And when I got out of the theater, they gave me a free ticket because there was a mouse in the theater. So I actually have a pass. If somebody wants to go to a movie, I have a free uh, pass to get in. But anyway, listen, I can tell you this right now. I guarantee you that lady ain't going back to that movie theater. You with me? That changed her perspective. You know what I'm saying? How many of you have ever loved like canoeing or kayaking until that time you canoed with your spouse? Anybody had one of those moments before? And now all of a sudden you're like, I hate a canoe for as long as I live. You may have enjoyed it before, but a perspective because of some experience changed that. Or maybe it was a a really good friend and something happened, right? They did something, you did something, whatever, whoever it was, whatever it was, it changed how you saw that person from that moment on. A perspective was changed. I bet everybody in this room could describe a particular time in their life where they had one perspective, but because of something else, your perspective was completely changed. Well, for me, When I decided to follow Jesus, this same kind of transformation happened. I began to see the world differently. Now listen, I bet you're in this same boat. Think about it with me. At one time, we saw the world as a place for us to do whatever was best for us, no matter who it affected. Now we see the world as a place for God to use us for his glory. Our perspective on life and why we're here changed. 
We now know that our purpose is to serve God and we're here to do whatever he desires. In fact, our perspective on all of life should be to serve Jesus in every way possible. And that's exactly what Paul helps Timothy see in 2 Timothy chapter number four. I want to read just the first eight verses and then spend some time talking about how these perspectives change how we view the world today. Let me just show you what happens. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse number 1. I'll change this back if that's really driving you crazy. It's kind of making me a little sick seeing it on my screen. So anyway, back to norm. This is how I see now, by the way. All right, verse number 1, 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Look at verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Lord Jesus, will you use your word tonight to challenge our hearts to live for you, to serve you every day and in every way. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. With that text in mind, with our perspectives being changed because of Jesus, I want you to see just a few things that Paul's bringing out in this text tonight for every Christian and how we should have a different perspective on life because of these things. You ready? Here's the first one. God has purposed you to share him with the world. You say, Danny, how should my perspectives change? Well, the first perspective that should change is that God has purposed you to share him with the world. That's what he says in the beginning of 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1. He says to Timothy, Paul's words, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, this word for charge is an interesting word. It means to admonish or instruct with regard to some future happening or action. With the the implication of personal knowledge or experience. It can mean to warn. Paul's been warning Timothy all throughout this letter. However, this warning isn't for Timothy to watch out for anyone else. This warning is for Timothy to be warned who he stands before, who he represents. It's a warning that he is in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, to give you a better picture of this, the root word in the word charge is where we get our word for martyr. It means a witness. It was used in pagan Greek to call the gods and men to witness in court. It's literally as if Paul is swearing Timothy into a courtroom. He's been summoned. He's been summoned to appear before a judge, and Paul's making sure he knows that the judge is God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. He's warned about the seriousness of this purpose. This is kind of like this moment where you say, you know what? Uh-uh, I swear on my mama's grave. 
Heard somebody say something like that before? Or, you know what, where's a Bible at? I'll put my hand on a Bible right now. I'm telling you the truth, right? Like this is kind of one of those moments for Paul to Timothy. He's looking at him saying, Timothy, don't you mistake who you're standing in front of. Don't you mistake who you're representing. Before God, before Jesus, before all that is right in the world, I am charging you with something so significant. As a matter of fact, John MacArthur wrote this. He said the phrase, in the presence of parallels a common format used in Roman courts and legal documents and would have been familiar to Timothy and others of that day. A typical summons might have begun. The case will be drawn up against you in the court of Hierapolis in the presence of the honorable Judge Festus, chief magistrate. So it's as if He's being called to the carpet before God to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, right? Now, what is it that he's charged with? What is it that we are purposed to do as followers of Jesus? Well, look at verse 2, because he breaks it down for us very, very simply. As a matter of fact, if you can't understand 2 Timothy 4.2, then you just don't want to follow Jesus. You say, Danny, what do you mean? We're charged to preach the word. I'm not making that up. I'm not trying to give you a crafty, beautiful statement here that has all the same letters, although I really do like doing that, and so it's really hard for me to not, but I'm not. Because this is literally what God said as he penned these words through the Apostle Paul. We're charged to preach the word. Paul didn't want Timothy to simply make friends and have some good times in Ephesus. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But he wanted him to tell people that Jesus has died for their sins, and if they didn't repent and turn to him, they would be forever separated from God. He was purposed for something bigger than just his own enjoyment and fulfillment in life. He was purposed to preach the word. In fact, this is exactly what Paul did in Athens. Here's what's recorded in Acts chapter 17. Here's what Paul said. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Athens was an incredible place with so much to enjoy, and I'm sure Paul enjoyed his time there. However, his goal wasn't to take in the sights. His goal wasn't to make best friends. His goal was to preach the word. Our goal should be the same. Everywhere we are, everywhere we go, preach the word. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Share Jesus with people. You say, Danny, Paul's talking as one pastor to another pastor about preaching sermons from the pulpit. Friends, I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is that we all preach sermons every day. We preach them through the way that we live. We preach them through the things that we say. We preach them with our lives. Friends, are you preaching the word to the people around you because we've been purposed by God to share him with the world. We're charged to preach the word, share Jesus. But look at what else he says in 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. We're charged to be ready anytime in season and out of season. There may never be a comfortable, convenient moment to tell whoever it is in your life about Jesus. You may find every excuse, every exemption, every reason and, 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 and purpose for why you will not do what God wants you to do because it's just not the right time or the right moment or convenient or comfortable. I'm with you. You may never find it. However, no matter the time, the situation, the weather, or anything, we are to be ready to share Jesus. 
Jesus. This is why Paul reminds us we're charged to be ready in season and out of season. You may not know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may not know what conversation is going to take up at work. You may not know what your family is going to deal with that God brings an opportunity for you to share Jesus. You don't know what tomorrow holds. So you know what? You're ready in season and out of season to share Jesus. You are charged to be ready. But listen, we're also charged to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's right there. Second Timothy chapter four, verse two, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. We all have people in our lives that God has placed there for this very purpose. Sometimes we're the one that does the reproving. We're the ones that state when someone has done something wrong, convict and expose. Sometimes we're the one that does the rebuking, correcting the wrong in someone else's life. Sometimes we're the one that does the exhorting or encouraging or consoling. The word for exhort, by the way, is an interesting word. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Now the reason why I would tell you that word is because it means to urge, implore, exhort. But you know what else it means? It's literally a word in the New Testament used for the Holy Spirit. You are to act as an agent that brings about spiritual maturity in other people's lives. Sometimes it's you that is reproving and rebuking and exhorting. Can I tell you something else though? Other times it's relationships in your life that that are doing that to you. <laughs> How many of you know? Many more times than not, I'm not the one who reproves, rebukes, or exhorts. I have someone in my life who's doing that for me. Someone's exposing sin. Someone's correcting sin. Someone's encouraging me not to sin anymore. Listen, this wasn't always the easiest thing to do. It's certainly never easy to tell someone they're doing something wrong or to correct someone else. However, when we are, we are to do it patiently, standing with them through anything. Also, this isn't the easiest thing for us to accept from other people either. However, we need to receive it in love, knowing that we are, in fact, better together. Listen, people, by the way, that includes you and that includes me. People aren't always excited about having to turn their lives around. But we're to keep at them about what God desires and them at us. And we're to continue to do it, as Paul says, with complete teaching. We're never to water down the message of Jesus, but tell people the truth and what God wants to do through them. We all stand before God with our lives. And at some point in time, we must realize that we've been commanded by God to share Jesus with the world. He tells his disciples this. He tells us this in Matthew 28. One of the last things he will say is go therefore and make disciples. Friend, God has purposed you. He's purposed me to share him with the world. This is the perspective that we need on life. He's purposed us to share him with the world. Let me show you another perspective that certainly needs to happen. People are heading off into eternity every day, every day. I don't know what the count was today. I didn't look it up, but there's actually a counter. You can find it. It lets you know how many people died today. There are thousands that step off into eternity every single day. Look back at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, but catch this little phrase after that. Who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom? Who is to judge the living and the dead? Now, instead of using the word charge, the New Living Translation uses the phrase solemnly urge. 
Now, I think this is fitting when it comes to a discussion about eternity, because every single day people are leaving this world and they are entering the next. And because of this and the unknown, we don't know who's going tomorrow. We don't know who's living another 50 years. Because of this, it's urgent that we share Jesus with others. This is why Paul urged Timothy to remember God has purposed us to share Jesus with the world. When people enter into eternity, we are no longer able to share Jesus with them. It must happen. They must give their lives to him on this side of eternity or they will not do it at all. The urgency we hear in Paul's words here and all throughout this letter is because none of us know when this day will come. So we must share Jesus as often as we possibly can. Now listen, the New Testament reveals three different judgments of God. Some people put two of these together, but there are three different mentions. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, the first mention is the judgment of the works of believers. You can find this in several different texts of the New Testament. And if you want to read about it, I'll tell you where you can find it. But this is when the deeds of Christians will be tried by fire to see which works were of God and which were not. This will be a joyous occasion for some of us who will get to lay those jewels down at the feet of the one we worship. It will also be a sad time for some of us when we realize that most of what we did on this side of eternity meant nothing. And we wasted it. What an interesting day of judgment that will be. The second judgment that's mentioned is of the sheep and the goats. Separation of those who actually follow Jesus and those who don't. There's a third one. Some people put this in the same category as the sheep and the goats. It's called the great white throne judgment. This is in which unbelievers will be condemned to spend all of eternity in hell separated from God forever. And there are only two questions. You say, Dan, why do you tell us about the judgments? Because there are really only two questions to ask yourself as you reflect on this particular truth from the New Testament. Here's the first one. Will you be forever separated from God? If that judgment was to be cast on you today, if you were to die tonight, if Jesus was to come back in the next few moments, what would the judgment be on you? Would it be a great white throne judgment? Would it be a separation of the sheep from the goats? And would you forever spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell because you've never given your life to Jesus? Is that you? Another question you might need to ask yourself is will people you know you see, you associate with every day. Are there people that you know who will be separated from God if Jesus was to come back tonight or if they were to die tonight? Listen, for the believer, we will one day stand before God and give an account of what we've done in this life that really matters. There will be no jury, no explanations, no excuses. This court will have the truth because God knows us better than we know ourselves. However, there's really only one thing that we can bring with us to heaven, and that is people. So the question for you must be this. Who will not be in heaven because I didn't tell them about Jesus? For Timothy, he would be judged according to what he taught. For all preachers, that is true. We find this in James chapter 3. However, all followers of Jesus will be judged for what they did with Jesus. What will your judgment look like if it happened right now? Friend, listen to me. People are headed off into eternity every day. Are they leaving this life to be with Jesus or are they leaving this life to be separated from him forever? This is the perspective that we need on life. Let me show you a third one. 
Not only are people headed off into eternity every day, but people are turning away as we speak. Right now, in this very moment, there are people who are turning away from God. Listen, it may not be that people are dying all around you. However, you may know people or be one of these people who have found themselves turning away from God. Here's what Paul mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. You've heard these phrases before. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That phrase is scary. The time is coming. Not might come, not possibly, not if we don't do what we're supposed to do. No, friends, the time is coming when people will no longer care about the truth or care about the things that they once cared about. Matter of fact, you might know people, you might know friends, you might know family that already fit into this category. You remember their faith. You remember how strong it was at one time. However, now they've turned their backs on God, the one in which they once believed. In. You may know people like this. Listen, you may be this person in here tonight who has turned, who has walked away from what God has wanted you to do. You would rather suit your own passions. In fact, can I tell you the truth? There have been plenty of seasons in my life where this has been me. I have wanted to suit my own passions. I have wanted to go my own way, even though I know God's is better. I have given in to sin that Jesus himself died for. Friends, there was a day, and many of you can remember it, where the world was much more welcoming to Jesus, much more welcoming to the church. Matter of fact, you might remember a time before now when it was easier to follow Jesus because our culture was much more accepting of God. Everyone around you cared about church. Everyone around you pretty much did good things. There wasn't a lot of people offering you to do things that you knew you shouldn't. However, the time is coming, and most possibly has come, where it will be difficult to follow Jesus and where no one cares to hear about what God wants to do in their lives. Instead, people would rather accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Friends, the day when I start making you feel good about your sin is the day that you should ask me to go somewhere else. We should never be comfortable living in what Jesus came to die for. We should never be people who turn away from listening to the truth. But a time is coming and may already be when people will rather live in a lie than actually have the truth. In fact, Paul mentions people even in his day like this. If you were to look just a few verses beyond this, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, here's what you find Paul writing. For Demas... In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Listen, he's not speaking as if the time wasn't coming. It was coming for him. Friends, if it was coming for him then, imagine where we are now. The time is coming. People are turning away as we speak. Friends, this is the perspective that we need on life. Urgency to the things of God because of what's happening in the world around us. Let me show you a fourth one. He said, Danny, what do you mean, another perspective? Yes, here it is. God has called us. We're not in this thing alone. We've been purposed by him. He's called us to be different. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look at verse 5. As for you, I love that phrase, as 
for you. You say, Danny, why do you like it? Because it makes all my excuses go away. Why do I have to, you fill in the blank. Why do I say no to this? Why can't I do that? Paul answers all those questions with this phrase, as for you. Timothy, you're not going to go that way. You don't do those things. You don't live that life. As for you, as for all those who follow Jesus, it's different for you. You're not like everyone else. You've been called out of darkness and into his glorious light. God has called you to something more. Now watch this. Since God has called us, here's what Paul reminds Timothy of. Always be sober-minded. Always. Because God has called you, be sober-minded. Now listen, this isn't referring to alcohol, although it is similar. The reason being drunk is so bad is because you lose control of yourself. You make decisions that you wouldn't normally make, and you say things that you wouldn't normally say because you are drunk. When you're drunk, you're controlled by the substance you abused, and therefore you're not yourself. Paul's reminding Timothy of this. He's saying, be self-controlled. Be able to decide what God would want for you in every situation. The phrase could be translated like this. Always be watchful, or always pay attention. The world's getting worse, but God has called you to something better, so be sober-minded. Watch this, though. Since God has called us, endure suffering endure it he's letting us know right off the bat it's not going to be easy as a matter of fact serving God will never be the easiest thing for you to do it will cost you something however we can endure it as so many before us have because God has called us Theodore Roosevelt he's been quoted who knows how many times wrote something extraordinary about victory I want to read it to you he wrote, it's not the critic who counts, not that man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effect without error and shortcoming, who does actually try to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Far better. Is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checked by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who knows neither enjoyment nor suffering because they live in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat? The taste of victory is often seasoned with pieces of defeat. As a matter of fact, Paul mentions this reality later in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Listen to these verses. This is 14 through 17, just a little bit past what we read. He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he, is strongly he has strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Friends, he doesn't say you won't be in the lion's mouth, but he does say you will be rescued from it. He never says you won't be in the fire, 
but he certainly says you will never be in the fire alone. Isn't it amazing to know that as we walk through it, no burning can happen as Jesus brings about victory. He says, listen, since you've been called, he's not saying it'll be easy, but he is saying you can endure suffering. Watch this. Since God has called us, he tells him, do the work of an evangelist. There it is again. Share Jesus with others and invite them to know him as you do. You say, Danny, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have the gift of an evangelist. I don't have that. That's not what the Lord is. No, 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 friends. You're missing the point. All of us have been asked to be evangelists. All of us have been asked to share our faith. All of us have been gifted to tell people of what Jesus has done for us. As a matter of fact, nobody can tell someone else what Jesus has done for you, except for you. You're the only evangelist when it comes to telling somebody your story about Jesus. Since God has called us, do the work of an evangelist. Watch this. Since God has called us, fulfill your ministry. Literally, complete or accomplish what God has called and gifted you to do. Friend, God has called us. What more do we need to serve him with our lives? This is the perspective we need on life. Here's the last one. Last perspective. God rewards our faithful service. I don't know why we get scared sometimes with all the crazy health and wealth kind of gospels out there. But just because there's people overusing what the Lord will do on our behalf doesn't mean that the Bible does not teach his reward for our faithful service. Look at 2 Timothy 4 verse 6. Paul tells Timothy, he's nearing the end of his life. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Drink offering, that phrase is most likely Paul referring to the end of his life like an Old Testament sacrifice. He's finally laid down the last sacrifice. He will soon be beheaded and his life literally pouring out as a sacrifice. This gives a completely new picture to what he wrote to the church in Rome. You remember this? Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He goes on, verse 7, look at it. I have fought the good fight. Can we claim that as well? I have finished the race, have we? I have kept the faith. Do we agree? Paul could say, possibly like no one else, that he has finished the race and kept all that he needed to keep. If anyone was faithful outside of Jesus, of course, it was the apostle Paul. So look at what he says, verse 8. This is so beautiful. Don't miss it. And all the chaos of 2 Timothy, all the warnings, all the challenges, all the push. Paul says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge. Listen to this. It's, it's the Lord that will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the reward. Not just his reward, but all those who have loved his appearing. All of us who serve God faithfully will receive the highest honor when we get to heaven. We'll be crowned with righteousness by the King of Kings himself. Listen to what Paul writes later. This is toward the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is in verse 18. Paul writes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Listen to this. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Think about that, friends. 
God will reward us, bring us into his kingdom, be faithful to his promises. God rewards faithful service. I'm not talking about in, in, in any way that we can even think about rewards. We're talking beyond what we can even comprehend. This is the perspective we need on life. Now, let me just, let me just ask you a question. Where are you in your relationship with God tonight. Maybe you need some changes in your perspective. Maybe you need some God lenses, right? Help you see the world as he sees the world. I, I recently read, I don't know how many of you have ever studied the life of William Borden, but I just read an article about him not too long ago. William was a member of the Borden Dairy family. You've probably heard of Borden's milk. Anybody? All right, I'm not alone. Good. In 1904, he finished high school in Chicago and was given a world cruise as a graduation present. Sounds kind of cool, right? I think I also went on a cruise, but it wasn't around the world. Particularly while traveling through the Near East and Far East, he became heavily burdened for those who did not know Jesus. After returning home, he spent seven years at Princeton University, the first four, his undergraduate work, and the last three in seminary, preparing to be a pastor. While in school, he penned these words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Although his family pleaded with him to take control of the family business, which was floundering, he insisted that God's call to the mission field had priority. So after disposing of his wealth, he added to the back of his Bible, no retreat after the words, no reserves. On his way to China to witness to Muslims there, he contracted cerebral meningitis in Egypt and died within a month. After his death, someone was looking through his Bible and discovered these final words. There was the phrase, no reserves. Under that was the phrase, no retreat. And under that was the phrase, no regrets. He knew the Lord does not require success. He only requires faithfulness. Let me ask you something, friends. Are you willing for your life to be poured out as Paul's life was poured out for the sake of Jesus? Do you view all of life as the opportunity to serve him? This is the perspective we need. Maybe we once had it and just need a reminder to refocus. Whatever the case, our perspective for all of life should be to serve Jesus in every way possible. Charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. You're charged, friends. Will you see the world as God sees it? Will you do as God does? Will you live the way he wants you to live? Listen to me. Will you be able to say no reserves, no retreat, no regrets? I lived my life for Jesus.